invitation on June 10th. Um, if you have not been baptized before and you want to be baptized, we're inviting you to come down to Deep Creek. Um, we want to know that you're coming um, to be baptized. And so if you want to fill out a Connect card or one of the cards at your table, the blank postcards, and just drop it in there and say, I want uh, to be baptized. I know a few people have already signed up and more. Um, uh, there's room for much more. And so if you want to do that, um, we'll probably get together. I'll, I'll either speak with you privately or we'll get together. There's a group of us and we'll talk about what that means in a couple Sundays. Um, so let us know if you want to be a part of that. Also, the invitation is there for all of us who have been baptized to, to again, to come down to the waters and to remember, to stand and to, um, like Tim said, reconnect. Uh, and so, again, uh, we started doing this uh, a little bit different last year and uh, it was a great time. And so we're inviting you back to Deep Creek to be a part of that. Um, Again, Tim touched on it just, just a bit. He said, you know, th- how important that Sunday is. And I, I often say this um, every year about this time that that's not the Sunday to miss. That's not the Sunday to skip uh, church. Not like any of you skip church, but if you were, that's not it. I always say choose Christmas or Easter. I mean, you've heard those stories before. Um, we need the room. We need a parking space. Um, but this is the Sunday to come be a part of. It's, it's why we do what we do, to see lives transformed, to see people recognize, become aware, and announce that they've been called the beloved sons and daughters of God. And so what an exciting time to be there with people as they experience that, uh, and then to just be reminded of it yourself. And so we'll be out there uh, at Deep Creek, and it'll be kind of a potluck again. We'll grill some um, burgers and stuff like that, but uh, inviting you to be a part of that. So uh, in the uh, welcome, Jody mentioned that her and I, and many of you probably, or a few of you had grown up maybe uh, in, in a Pentecostal. How many people had a, maybe a Pentecostal background? Anybody want to admit it? <laughs> Just me and her then. Uh, so, all right. Many of you are Baptists. I can tell by the way you participated in that. Um, so, so, yeah, oh, we, we ha- I have that story. And, and I've said before that I'm a recovering evangelical. I'm also a recovering Pentecostal, too. I have many... Uh, what I feel horror stories growing up as a kid in that Pentecostal church. Um, if you've seen anything or ever heard about that, the stories are true. Um, and uh, I started when I was probably five, and, and it was my, that was my life through, uh, through uh, college. It was this Pentecostal charismatic moment. And so I thought it was natural, and always every church had people that ran up and down the pews and, uh, um, and, and did dances and flips and things like that and, and uh, spoke in weird languages and and then uh, uh, awkward silence until then someone translated that, what, what was we thought was uh, um, gibberish in those moments. And so I want to be careful because I have jokes, but I don't want to tell them to not offend you or the Holy Spirit. And it's been raining and thundering a lot recently, and I don't want to give God a, a coincidence to strike me down with that lightning. So I'm not going to make any jokes about it, but I, I do have stories of um, my Pentecostal background. But let me read a, a passage out of uh, John chapter 20. Um, this is going to be in the message. It'll be behind me. But let's read this first and we'll jump in. Verse 19 says, Later on that day, the disciples had gathered together, but fearful of the Jews had locked all the doors in the house. So this is about eight to ten days after um, the resurrection. It says, Jesus entered, stood among them and said, Peace to you. And then he showed them his hands and his side and the disciples, seeing the master with their own eyes, were exuberant. They, they, Jesus re- repeated his greeting. He said, peace to you. Just as the Father has sent me, I send you. And in verse 22, he says, Then he took a deep breath, and he breathed into them. 
receive the Holy Spirit. We just finished uh, part three of the book that we're going through together, the We Make the Road by Walking by Brian McLaren. In the last section we were just in, we placed ourselves in the, the shoes, the sandals of the disciples, in God's peaceful uprising. It was against the forces of fear, the forces of oppression and hostility, and the forces of violence. Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would take the work he began and extend it across time and space, creating this global spiritual community to keep welcoming and embodying what Jesus called the reign or the kingdom or the commonwealth of God. And so this next section that we're entering into is called uh, Alive in the Spirit. And it begins with a season traditionally known as Pentecost. And so the author, Brian McLaren, he invites us to ask this key question of ourselves. How can we participate with the Spirit in this ongoing spiritual movement? How can you and I participate with the Spirit in this ongoing spiritual movement? And he defines spiritual as any experience of or response to the moving of the Spirit of God in our lives and in this world. And Pentecost Sunday is also what the, uh, the church celebrates as its birthday, right? We celebrate by coming together, that we trust a community of believers. We celebrate that we can overcome our differences. We celebrate that under Christ we are united. We celebrate that there's no longer slave or free or Jew or Gentile or man or woman. No longer does race, color, or gender separate us. Well, at least it shouldn't, not if we're following Jesus' example. The word Pentecost is a transliteration of the Greek word Pentecostus, which means 50. Pentecost happened 50 days after Jesus was crucified. It was a feast that was celebrated 50 days after the Passover. And it was this moment when the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples. That same spirit, the same power, might, and inspiration is available to all of us today. One breath away. So let me kind of set the scene that's going on here. It's been 50 days since Jesus was crucified. The disciples, they're scared, right? They're fearful, fearful for their lives because the Romans and the religious leaders and the temple police are chasing after them just as they chased after Jesus. And they're scared for their own lives now. And so the disciples, they, they hide in this house. And if you remember the story, Jesus appeared a few different times after the resurrection. And they were comforted when they saw him. But then it went right back to this fear and confusion. So about 40 days after the resurrection, Jesus again appears and tells them, that he, that he has to leave now for good. And that they had to wait for this promise from the Father. What promise was the question? What, what did he mean by that? And then Jesus gave his very last words before he ascended into heaven. When he said this. In Acts chapter 1. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. And to the ends of the earth. And so the disciples waited and waited in a house, not knowing what they were waiting for. Have you ever been told to wait for anything? Anybody like waiting for anything? You know, you feel like maybe, hey, wait, my 10, 15, 20 minutes. These guys had to wait like 10 days. And if you could imagine being one of the disciples just waiting there, looking at each other day after day, afraid to, to go outside, not even knowing what they were waiting for. 
And then 10 days later, 10 days after Jesus had ascended into heaven, this huge sound of an ear-splitting, rushing wind that was howling, blasting, roaring through the house. And suddenly what Luke describes as tongues of fire started to appear over every person's head. And incredibly, these scared, fearful people were filled with the Holy Spirit. They stagger out into the streets with so much joy that people think that they're drunk. It's exactly what Jesus said would happen. God would send the Holy Spirit to fall on his followers, to give them power, to give them incredible wisdom, and to what seems like the supernatural ability to speak in languages that they didn't even know. The Holy Spirit's power that came on them was so strong that Peter and the disciples, they went outside and they stood in a crowd and they boldly told about Jesus. They were just minutes ago afraid to die. That the effect then from that sharing of the stories that it says that 3,000 people were, became believers and were baptized that day alone. And the gospel began to spread throughout the world to even the Gentiles, meaning those that were not Jews, which includes you and I today. We wouldn't be here gathered together as a community of believers if it were not for Pentecost. And so what does that mean for us? Well, the Holy Spirit is often the most obscure part of the Trinity. Father, Mother, Son, Holy Spirit. We get the Father, Mother part. We get the God, the Son part. But what is it about the Holy Spirit? What is it for? In Richard Rohr, he calls it the indwelling. He says this, Most religious people I've met, from sincere lay people to priests and nuns, still imagine God to be elsewhere. Before you can take the now seriously, you must shift from thinking of God as out there to also knowing God in here. In fact, that is the best access point. Only inner experience can bring about a healing of the human divine split. He says transformation comes by realizing your union with God right here, right now, regardless of any performance or achievement on your part. This is the core meaning of grace. But you have to know this for yourself. No one can do this knowing for you. I could tell you that God is elsewhere and heaven is not later. But until you come to personally and regularly experience that, you will not believe it. He says authentic Christianity overcame the God is elsewhere idea that in at least two major and foundational ways, he says, through the incarnation, God and Jesus becoming flesh, God visibly moved in in with the material world to help us overcome the illusion of separation. And secondly, God as Holy Spirit is precisely known as the indwelling presence that by itself, intellectual assent to these truths does little. The incarnation and indwelling spirit are known only through participation and practice when you actively draw upon such infinite sources. In other words, he says, use it or lose it. Good theology helps us know that we can fully trust the now because the incarnation and the spirit is with us. So this part of the story also communicates that the filling of the Holy Spirit is is also for ordinary people. Like common fishermen like Peter and James and John. Tax collectors like Matthew and women like Mary and skeptics and doubters like Thomas and pretty much the rest of the disciples. 
historians and physicians like Luke that it was not just for the privileged, but for people with, from all walks of life. We also see that the Holy Spirit is for all races. The disciples break out into different languages to communicate to all cultures that the Spirit is for all people. McLaren says this, that what happened at Pentecost reverses the ancient story of the Tower of Babel. When ambitious Babylonians grasp at godlike power by unifying everyone under one imperial language and culture at Babel, God opposed the imperial uniformity and voted for diversity by multiplying the languages. Now, in the Pentecost story, we discover a third option. Not unity without diversity, and not diversity without unity, but unity and diversity and harmony. Well, why did Pentecost happen this way? Why the big flashy scene uh, for the entrance of the Holy Spirit, right? Well, throughout the centuries, and especially now, we know that drama is used to get our, our attention for the most important messages. Whether it's dance or acting or music or video, lights, sound effects, smoke machines, we use them all today. And God often uses incredibly dramatic methods to get our attention. He uses supernatural events to say, look, it is I and I have a message and a mission for you. That is, this is why God uses miracles and signs and, and, and wonders like the rushing of wind, the tongues of fire. Something that breaks into our ordinary day to say, look, there's something here. Something greater than who, uh, who was there already. Something to say to us, I'm here. It says, the Bible describes the spirit with beautiful and vivid imagery. Wind, breath, fire, cloud, water, wine, a dove. These dynamic word pictures contrast starkly with the heavy fixed imagery provided by, say, stone idols, imposing temples, or thick theological tones. Through this vivid imagery, the Bible and the biblical writers tell us that the Spirit invigorates, animates, purifies, holds mystery, moves and flows, ferments joy, and spreads peace. For example, in the first chapter of Genesis, God's Spirit hovers over the primal waters like wind, creating beauty and novelty out of chaos. The Spirit then animates living creatures like, like breath. And then in Exodus, God's Spirit appears as fire in the burning bush, beckoning Moses, and then as a pillar of cloud and fire moving across the wilderness, cooling by day and warming by night, and leading the way to freedom. Centuries later, when John the Baptist comes on the scene, he says that just as he immerses and marks people with water, his successor will immerse and mark people with the Spirit. When John baptizes Jesus, bystanders see the Spirit descending like a dove upon him. At the beginning of his ministry, Jesus dramatizes his mission by turning water, which is kept in stone containers used for religious ceremonies, into a huge quantity of wine to infuse joy at a wedding banquet. And later he promises people that if they trust him, they will experience rivers of living water springing up from within. So at the core of Jesus' life and message then was this good news that the Spirit of God, the Spirit of aliveness, 
The wind, breath, fire, cloud, water, wine, dove, spirit, who filled Jesus is on the move in our world. For the next few moments, I just want to focus on the imagery of fire here at the Pentecost story. It was an amazing display of God's dramatic voice. Fire, we know, burns off the things that cripple us and prevent us from serving God. The Spirit of God burns away the chaff in our hearts and enables us to carry out God's ministry on earth. And when I want to read something, how many of you would admit you watched some of the royal wedding yesterday? Oh, look at you in church. We're being honest. That's awesome. I have to admit, I did not watch any of it. But I was in the car at 6 a.m. on the way to a basketball tournament, and um, I listened to it. So there it was. And uh, I don't know of those of you that were able to watch it or those that heard about it. Um, an amazing message was delivered by the Bishop Michael Curry. And I want to read a, a piece of this, this that ties in this idea of fire. He says that the French Jesuit Pierre de Chardin was arguably one of the great minds, one of the great spirits of the 20th century. A Jesuit, a Roman Catholic priest, a scientist, a scholar, a mystic. In some of his writings, he said from his scientific background as well as his theological one. In some of his writings, he said, as others have said, that the discovery or invention or harnessing of fire was one of the great scientific and the, uh, technological, uh, technological d- discoveries of all human history. Fire, to a great extent, made human civilization possible. Fire made it possible to cook food and to provide sanitary ways of eating, which reduced the spread of disease in its time. Fire made it possible to heat warm environments and thereby made human migration around the world a possibility, even in colder climates. Fire made it possible. There would would be no Bronze Age without fire, no Iron Age without fire, and no Industrial Revolution without fire. The advances of science and technology are greatly dependent on the human ability and capacity to take fire and use it for human good. He then asked the crowd, well, did anyone come in a car today? Did anyone come in in an automobile? He says, Those of us who came in cars, that controlled, harnessed fire made that possible. He says, I know the Bible says it and I believe it that Jesus walked on water, but he had to admit that he had not walked across the Atlantic Ocean to get there, but fire controlled the plane that got him there. It says, fire makes it possible for us to text and tweet and email and Instagram and Facebook and be socially dysfunctional with each other. The crowd laughed there too, good job. Fire makes all of that possible. And De Chardin said that fire was one of the greatest discoveries in all of human history. And he went on to say that if humanity ever harnesses that energy of fire again, if humanity ever captures the energy of love, it will be the second time in history that we have discovered fire. And he went back to an earlier quote where he said, Dr. King was right. We must discover love the redemptive power of love. And when we do that, we will make of this old world a new world. Now you might still ask the question, well, why do we really need the Holy Spirit? And I want you to be ready for this because this this might hurt. Here it is. It's because we cannot give what we do not 
have. Author Brene Brown writes, we cannot give what, to, uh, what we do not have. And I think what she means is we cannot give love to other people if we do not have love in our own hearts. She says that parents don't like to hear that. But the fact is we cannot pass on to our children love, courage, and grace when we do not have them ourselves. How can we expect our kids to be loving if we're not? Courageous if we're not. Compassionate if we're not. Gracious and forgiving if, we are, uh, if we're not. Faithful if we're not. Have integrity if we do not. Peacemaking if we are fighting all the time in front of them. We cannot give or pass on what we do not have. And then she says this. The space between how we behave, what we practice every day, and our aspirational values is that gap where we begin to lose people. The gap from where we stand and practice and what we profess is where people disengage. In other words, where we are and where we profess is where we lose people. That's the gap. I spend a little bit of my free time coaching our travel softball team. We're called West Carolina Smoke. Tom, Jordan, both help me in... uh, we have a, a saying in softball, and it's a common metaphor throughout most of sports, and the metaphor is the gap, right? So in softball, we say things like, watch the gap, fill the gap, hit it to the gap, find the gap. The girls have a cheer for when one of their teammates are at bat. It says, I see a gap, and Maisie's going shopping. I see a gap. Yeah. So they do it more beautiful than I do, but they do that. And so what is the gap? Well, the gap is the space in between two objects, right? Defined as the the break or the hole in an object or between two objects. It is the unfilled space. So in softball, it's the space between two defensive players. And so if you're hitting, you want to hit it to the gap. You want to find the gap, right? On defense, we want the girls to to watch the gap, to to fill the gap, to, to cover the gap. You and I, we have to recognize that there is a gap in our lives. There is a gap between what we say we believe and how we actually live our lives. For some of us, the gap is Monday through Saturday. Last Sunday was the last time you thought about God. It was the last time you prayed. It was the last time you took a deep breath and slowed down. It was the last time you were in a community of believers. And for some of us, it's been two or three weeks because being here... It's not that big of a priority for you. It's a personal gap for you and and I when it comes to how we practice our faith, how we interact with people, how we run our businesses, how we love our wives and kids, and what we would tell people we believe. But here's the thing. See, people are not looking for perfection out of us. They're looking for people who really practice love. All the mess... And all the grit. And you might say, well, I, I cannot give what I don't have. I, and I admit, I don't have that kind of love. So there's a gap in my life. I'm, I'm not consistent. I talk about love, but I, but I don't really love the unlovables. I really don't know how to forgive people. I, I really don't know how to tell people about God. So what do I do about that gap? Because I don't always have the love and compassion and courage I should have. But I want it. How, how can I have it? And the answer is this. 
We can have it through the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Just like what the Holy Spirit did on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit gives us power to do the things that God wants us to do, like show love, compassion, and grace to others. Because the Holy Spirit fills the gap. See, Luke wrote two Gospels. He First, he wrote the Gospel of Luke, which was the story of Jesus. And then he writes Acts, which is the story of the church. In the book of Acts, he uses a phrase called the infilling of the Spirit, which means not just being filled to the brim, but rather being filled over and beyond the brim. That the Spirit pours in, flows, and over, uh, goes way over the top to overflowing, Right? When we are filled with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit soaks us. It saturates us. It flows in and it affects every facet, function, and faculty of our mind, our body, our emotions, and our soul. Every crack and crevice is filled with the Spirit. And the first response to being filled with the Holy Spirit is joy. And it's no wonder the apostles appeared to be drunk. They were drunk with joy. The Spirit comes into our lives and, uh, and we are just overflowing, bubbling over with the supernatural love and courage to love as Jesus loves, to use power to, to heal as Jesus healed, and to have courage to share the gospel, even if we're thrown in these sacrificial situations where we're no longer uh, living in a comfortable life. We can have the courage to not give up. We can have the strength after being knocked down. And we can have the courage to move out of our comfort zones and have a changed life. Brene Brown also says this. She says, you can choose courage or you can choose comfort, but you cannot choose both. They are mutually exclusive. You can choose courage or you can choose comfort, but you cannot choose both. They are mutually exclusive. If you've ever felt that your life as a Christ follower has been powerless or, or boring or, or just blah. And maybe that you have not sought to be filled with the Spirit and you have been living all this time on your own human strength, trying to do it on your own power. But you were never supposed to live on your own power when you chose to be a follower of Christ. Instead, you were supposed to ask for and wait for the Holy Spirit to fill you up. And yes, there's this initial feeling of the Holy Spirit when you become a follower of Jesus. But there should be this continual filling of the Spirit. And when the Spirit fills you, there's more power, love, hope, optimism in us that we will, just like the first century disciples, have joy, courage to heal the sick, cast out demons, spread the gospel, This morning and every morning, you and I have a chance to chase after holiness, to seek to be pure in heart. We have a chance to fill the gap where where we know we don't have the ability to handle everyday stresses or forgive that person in our life or love the unlovable or care about those who don't know Jesus. We have a chance to have real joy and power in our lives. So as God blows his spirit into you, I believe the fire in our hearts can get bigger and bigger. And you can have more power in our prayers to help and pray healing for others. We can love the unlovable and forgive the unforgivable. 
and have a real desire to tell the world about what Jesus has done. Watch this video. The Christian community, especially here in America, but to some degree we've imported this all around the world, we've tended to divide um, into two groups. Conservatives have tended to emphasize the personal dimensions of faith, and liberals have tended to emphasize the ethical and public and social dimension of faith. The results have not been good. When you have people who emphasize a public and ethical social vision of faith, but it isn't supported by a deep spiritual vitality, it can degenerate into kind of an ideology, sometimes into an institutionalism. Sometimes it doesn't sound that different than a political party and ideology. On the other hand, when people try to create a personal spirituality that doesn't address the realities of God's world that God loves so much, uh, that's going to be a deformed and distorted spirituality. It's going to end up very often becoming a kind of tribal religion that exists for the benefits of one group over others or even of certain kinds of powerful pastors and leaders who make a profit uh, over, uh, over the people that they service uh, spiritually. That, that's why I think as we move forward, we need what I sometimes like to call Pentecostalism 2.0. If the Pentecostalism of the last 100 years was about rediscovering the experience of the Holy Spirit, especially what the Holy Spirit can do at the end of long meetings with a lot of loud preaching and motivational music, I'd like to discover in the next 100 years what the Holy Spirit can do, not just in a church service, but in our whole lives. And not just relating to religious things, but what would happen if school teachers said, I want to teach my students math and geography and history with the power of the Holy Spirit flowing through me, with the energy and joy of the Spirit working through me. What would happen if doctors saw their medical work as, as spiritual work, what would happen if engineers said, you know, I really shouldn't be involved in that building project because that's building something that's actually harmful for God's creatures and God's world and some of God's people. Um, what would happen if we saw that the personal dimensions of being connected to the Spirit internally, letting our own hearts and lives and minds be filled and transformed by the Spirit, that's the preparation to make activists who go into the world and make a difference in relation to poverty and human conflict and and environmental destruction and an unsustainable economy. What would happen if we could combine the passion of personal vibrant spirituality with a responsible and wise and and engaged faith lived out in public life. So to me, one of the great opportunities and challenges as we move forward is to discover that the Holy Spirit is not a private spirit and is not a religious spirit, but is the spirit that 
fills and flows through and is manifested in all creation in the birds of the air and the fish of the sea that the spirit of the creator that shows in all of creation is inviting us into this beautiful vitality and aliveness in the spirit new life in God's spirit being connected to God and connected to all of God's creation oh my goodness it's a beautiful vision and it's what I think more and more of us are seeking as we walk the road of faith. So back to the royal wedding, and this will, this will be our benediction before we head down to our family, our family event down there. Love is not selfish and self-centered. Love can be sacrificial, and in doing, becomes redemptive. And that way of unselfish, sacrificial, redemptive love changes lives. And it can change this world. If you don't believe me, just stop and think or imagine Think and imagine a world where love is the way. Imagine our homes and families when love is the way. Imagine neighborhoods and communities where love is the way. Imagine governments and nations where love is the way. Imagine business and commerce when love is the way. Imagine this tired old world when love is the way. Unselfish, sacrificial, and redemptive. When love is the way, then no child will go to bed hungry in this world ever again. When love is the way, we will let justice roll down like a mighty stream in righteousness, like an overflowing brook. When love is the way, poverty will become history. When love is the way, the earth will be a sanctuary. When love is the way, we will lay down our swords and shields down by the riverside to study war no more. And when love is the way, there's plenty Plenty good room, plenty good room for all of God's children because when love is the way, we actually treat each other well like we are actually family. And when love is the way, we know that God is the source of us and all, and we are brothers and sisters, children of God. So my brothers and sisters, that's a new heaven, a new earth, a new world, a new human family. And let me tell you something, old Solomon was right in the Old Testament. That's fire. Guys, thank you for being a part of the Grove today. We'll see you next week.